0: Lieutenant Colonel Retired Russell Worth Parker spent the vast majority of his career in special operations units in the U.S. Marine Corps. As a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, he has a litany of combat lessons to pass on to the next generation of warriors. After 27 years of service, both as a reservist and as an active duty officer, he retired from the U.S. Marine Corps. However, he's far from done. He's gone on to write feature articles, ghostwrite books, and has since been published internationally. When the US forces pulled out of Afghanistan, Worth was on the cutting edge of coordinating the escape of many friendly Afghanis that were sure to be in harm's way when the Taliban arrived in Kabul. Let's get after it. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about
1: our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight. Yeah. if you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane.
0: All right, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Raven Report podcast. Today I have a very special guest, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Russell Worth Parker, who is a licensed attorney that I just recently found out about, and also an accomplished uh, writer for Garden Gun Magazine, uh, he goes, wrote a, a book about the uh, evac from uh, Kabul, and uh, well, I'm sure we'll get into it. So, uh, Russell, why don't you just, uh, or Worth, why don't you, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself?
1: All right. Well, as you said, I'm Russell Worth Parker. I go by uh, my middle name, Worth, um, which confuses everybody, and that's fine. Um, I was a Marine for 27 years total, uh, about 22 of that active, the rest of it reserve service. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you're right. I did help out with the, the Kabul evacuation and then ended up uh, working with two other folks who were intimately involved with it to, to produce a book about it called Always Faithful. Um, and that's about where I'm today. I write for a living. I don't know.
0: So how did you get into the uh, Marines?
1: Uh, my grandfather was a Marine in world war two. He got shot three times, uh, at Sugarloaf Hill in Okinawa and came home a, a very suddenly mature 21 year old guy. Right. Um, I have all his letters home from, you know, that whole period from the time he was training all the way through getting shot in a hospital ship, et cetera. And, that probably influenced me. My dad was a Marine in the early 70s. Um, and that that influenced me. Um, I just always one, just wanted to be in the military and have that experience, and probably not for standard reasons, but I've always been attracted to uh kind of the extreme poles of the world. I like to see the world at, at its its far edges. Um, and then also because I think service to the nation is in some fashion, an obligation that doesn't mean military service. I didn't even mean formal service. I think it just means how you comport yourself as a citizen. but uh, I do believe that that giving back in some fashion uh, matters and and while I wouldn't obligate anyone to it formally, I frankly think as an American citizen, you ought to feel that obligation um so that's probably what what drew me to the core. I plan to do i want to do four years. Uh, but I really wanted to be a recon guy, and that necessitates a longer stay to get. Um, and I did that initially through the reserves, and then the Marine Corps started a special ops component, and that's what I really wanted to be doing. So I I was, my force recon buddies were called to do that, and I had the opportunity to join them in that effort. So I went back to active duty life, uh, following law school, just decided I'd rather get shot at than be a lawyer. And, right. uh, <laughs> and so I did uh, about 16 more years. Um, active duty, all all of it within U.S. Special Ops Command in some way or, or form.
0: Right. So, um, so you, you did uh, four years you know, to begin with, uh, like, and you were you're an officer the entire time.
1: Yeah, I came out of the University of Colorado in 1994, um, and commissioned, and I was at Quantico five days later. Um, and so the, the Boulder, Colorado to Quantico schism is real. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but there I was, and I finished, you know, I did six months at the basic school and I was selected for what was a new program back then. And what I, I gather is, is a dying program now. Uh, but it was the 0203 ground intelligence MOS. So they train you as an infantry officer first, and then they send you actually to back then to the army, in, uh, intelligence officer course. Um, and then out to either uh, a scout sniper platoon and a grunt battalion or to a recon battalion. Oh. And so I went to a, a an infantry battalion, and ran the state platoon, sniper platoon, had a billion different names. That's dying too now, apparently. Uh, we're eliminating scout snipers from the infantry battalion. Uh, but that was my first job, and I really wanted to go to recon after that. Um, and and it wasn't working out, although the life lesson I learned there is, you know, I kept telling this is what I want to go do, and the the monitor who's your, I think you guys, I'm trying to think what you guys call a the person who moves you around up at the Pentagon,
0: yeah, Branch Chief. Or, or
1: D. Yeah. Taylor? No, that's the uh, name. Yeah. yeah, Branch Chief. So you, the equivalent of that in the Marine Corps uh, is the monitor and the occupational field sponsor. And they were like, well, uh, Lieutenant, you're going to go to the G2 at 1st or 2nd Marine Division or 1st or 2nd <laughs> Marine Expeditionary Force. And I understood the subtext of that was pour coffee and make slides. Um, I didn't want to do either of those things. So I got out, went to the reserves, took the Force Recon indock in the reserves um, and stayed at a uh, third Force Recon company in Mobile just down the street from a National Guard SF company um, for eight years. But as I say, between schools and uh, an active duty deployment to Iraq with second Force Recon, I was activated for probably about two years out of that eight year period right um, and then when i got back from iraq and as i said my friends were starting for, uh marsak i decided uh, i'm going to do this now All
0: right yeah so um so your first deployment was to iraq
1: uh my first deployment was to japan
0: right um, yeah so yeah
1: 911 uh but my first combat deployment and really the only one i call a combat deployment is i make a distinction between a combat deployment and a deployment to a combat zone right um, and I really do that out of respect to the e5s and O3s and O2s that are out there doing it um, so my deployment to Iraq was absolutely a combat deployment um, you know shooting at folks and getting shot at um, my deployments to Afghanistan were staff deployments one with a, a task force uh, and well, both of them various special ops task forces
0: right. Uh, so yeah, <clears throat> so tell me about your uh your first deployment, like like you that's your your or not your first deployment, but your first combat deployment. So yeah. like in the army, we like pretty much the only time we ever deploy is to combat. So like <laughs> yeah, it becomes like a uh a thing. But yeah, I get you guys like they they have the marines all all over the place doing all kinds of things. Uh, so uh, yes, yeah. so tell me about your first combat deployment. So
1: Joe, I was a reservist and and had been uh for about four years, um. I left active service. No, longer than that, I guess. I left active service in 98. Um, and then because nothing was ever going to happen and there was never going to be any excitement. So like all young junior officers who uh, do before think, um, right. I charged right out there figuring, well, I'll go to grad school and I'll go to the FBI or something like that, like everybody says they're going to do. Um, and I got out, to go to grad school. That ended up not happening. I worked a civilian job for two years as a, while I was still in the reserves. And then 9-11 hit. Right. And I was like, oh, oh, amazingly, I was wrong at 24. Hard <laughs> right. to believe uh, that I didn't have the world by the tail, but apparently I was wrong. Um, so I uh, you know kept waiting for him to call us to go to Afghanistan. Right. And I literally thought, you know as the towers were falling, like we'll, we'll be on a plane in like 48 hours. Um, that's uh, called the I and I who's the our version of whatever you call the local active duty guy at the site um and was like you know hey when do I need to come in (laughs) Um, and he was like it's really cool everybody's calling in and asking the same question um (laughs) but just they'll tell us uh so they told us in 2003 (laughs) yeah um and so i was by then i was the operations officer for third force and we had gone up to camp lejeune or lejeune depending on how you say it uh to plan our annual training uh, with our active duty counterparts at second force recon company so four of us flew up uh, from mobile to raleigh north carolina two active duty guys two reserve guys and when we got there, we had one cell phone between the four of us, because that's how it was back in the day. Right. And a voicemail like, hey, two of you get on the next plane back to Mobile. We're deploying. Uh, the other two go to Lejeune and plan this, because we're going to send one platoon right now with first Force Recon out of California. Um, and then we're going to send two platoons in the summer with second Force Recon to relieve that group. Um, and you're going. we're going to Western Iraq. Oh, OK, Great. So I looked at the deployment schedule and and frankly, I, I scammed it to my advantage and said, if I go right now on the first draft, I'm going to be the night watch officer uh, in a jock somewhere. And if right. I wait six months, I get to finish a year of law school and I'll deploy as a platoon commander and actually kick doors. Right. Um, so I gamed the system. Um, <laughs> and uh, in that summer, I, I kissed my wife on the mouth and, uh, and, and deployed to Camp Lejeune for three months. Um, I gained a lot of insight to the reserves then. And and I think that extrapolates to the guard then and and thus appreciation for, uh, because nobody was anticipating us really coming. All of the training plans that we had laid out when we'd flown up there the December prior, the, the TSRs, were the training support requests were literally sitting in a basket on the Ops Chief's desk where they had been since <laughs> December. right? And so, you know, suddenly two platoons worth of Force Recon guys and the support complement associated are living in a decrepit abandoned barracks on French Creek in Camp Lejeune with one functioning toilet between all of us. Um, it, it was and it was not the first time I lived in a decrepit abandoned <laughs> condemned building in the Marine Corps, but um, it, it, we, we had to make it up on the spot. You know, so we made up a combat deployment training program on the spot and executed 90 days of really mediocre training uh and then went to war. Okay. And then we got on the ground um in in Iraq. We we had a new CO. He had the the company had changed command uh over the course of the summer that we were there and kind of late in the game. So we had a new CO who's since become one of my best friends in the world. And thank God he was a, a great guy um and was able to a, take this complement of reservists, insert it into his unit and say, hey, we don't have active duty platoons and reserve platoons. Um, we have now eight active duty platoons. And right. it's, it's not platoons one through six that typically belong to the TO. It's platoons one through eight that now belong to the TO. And right. we will behave accordingly. Um, and that, that was really important. Um, it probably also was important that there was only one active duty platoon deployed along with two reserve platoons. So we were the, the mass of the force. Um, so when we got over there in August of 2004, I I would say nobody really knew what we were going to do. And, and the cynic in me says that continued for another 20 years of the global war on terror.
0: Yeah. right. Um,
1: But, uh, and I'll tell you that story later, probably, but, um, we got to al-Assad air base, which at that point was, you know, still kind of a blown out uh, Iraqi air base had been blown up about 14 months before. And there's, you know, dead aircraft lying everywhere and there's chunks of the base you still didn't go to because there were munitions laying around and um, we were only there for a few days and jumped in Humvees and like, Hey, we're going to make a 90 click movement to Al-Qaim Iraq. You're in enemy territory now. Um, Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and what was wild was we had sent a pre-deployment site survey over, and they had brought back video of them in Huseba, Iraq, driving down the street, you know, with all the doors off the Humvee, getting out and talking to people, buying chickens from people. By the time we got to Huseba, you didn't fly a helicopter below 500 feet uh, yeah. over the city. Right. Um, and uh, so we got there kind of in the beginning full swing of of the insurgency. Right. Um we had one platoon in Huseba, Iraq, right on the Syrian border uh, at Camp Gannon. The back wall of the base was the Syrian border. Right. Periodically the Syrians would whip mortar rounds over the border accidentally. Right. Um you know. Uh so we had a platoon living there in a building that had half a roof. Uh they ultimately moved into a bunker. Um my platoon was at at uh Al kaim base itself, which was an old train station and train yard. Um so I lived in a repair shack with 25 of my closest friends for 7 months. Mm-hmm. Um that was right next door to, you know, what ultimately became called Cash tents, so the trauma tents. So you know you you have these rude awakenings, you know. And I I I'd been in the Marine Corps 10 years at that point.
0: Yeah.
1: Um and and you can stop me talking anytime cuz No, I no, know, no, I'll...
0: keep going, it's great. Yeah.
1: Um I as I say, we had been well prepared for this. I've been training for the ultraviolence for a decade. Um, I was in a sniper unit. Now I'm in a force recon unit. We jump, we dive, we shoot, we do all the stuff. Um, and the first time is, I don't remember if it was before our little tryout mission or not, but I remember hearing the helicopters and not knowing really what they were, but we li- our tents were in one spot immediately. Or excuse me, our, our, Hooch was in one spot in a building immediately outside where however many tents were associated with the trauma hospital. And then the actual dust off helicopter pad was right there. Um, and the dust off people were amazed. They were, all, they were all army people. Um, and they were absolutely unreal. Um, so they brought a, I remember bringing a Marine in, had only been in country a few days. He was on a stretcher and I remember walking outside and seeing him running by, And the stretchers, you know, soaked in blood. And I was like, that guy has three legs. How does he have three legs? And then my brain caught up and I realized he'd had a traumatic amputation. They put the blown off leg like between his legs just to somewhere to put it on the off chance. Maybe they're going to sew this thing back on or whatever. Um, And that was kind of like, hey, welcome to Alcon um this is real and before that i'd known one marine from the previous deployment who took a piece of frag in and out through his leg and everybody was like oh my
0: god he was wounded he had
1: fragmentations like 20 what is it almost 20 years later now you know somebody would get hit over the last two decades and i'd be like okay was there an amputation yeah above the knee or below the knee uh below the knee okay that'll buff out he'll be all right Um, and I've got multiple friends who were below the knee amps who deployed two and three more times back to combat, Right. you know, so it's amazing the calculus that we made and the medical strides that were made to get us to that really messed up calculus. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, that was my welcome to, to Al Kham. Um, and we kind of did a, uh, a nothing mission where we just drove our, our Humvees out to the Syrian border and sat on a hill overnight because we're recon guys. So like Drive down there and watch the border and drive back, which really was just a confidence mission. Right. You know, it, it's just like playing T ball. You know, let's teach the kids how to hit the ball. So we drove down, we sat on the hilltop with the outgoing platoon or some of the leadership from the outgoing platoon. We talked over, you know, all night long. I didn't sleep. I'm sitting there in my, in my, uh, bullet bouncer, like, you know, we're going to get shelled any minute now. Right. Uh, <laughs> which was not the case. Uh, and, and we talked through the mission and we went back to, uh, Al the next morning. The only, like the, the funny thing from that was, you know, we're all these guys, most of us from lower Alabama. Yeah. Um, and we drive out there. My platoon Sergeant was the Marine equivalent of an AGR guy. So he, mm-hmm. he would move from site to site to site, but he's a full up qualified force recon dude, huge guy from Baldwin County, Alabama. And we drive up on this farm and there's all these white rocks out in the road. And we get out and we look at these circles of white rocks. And there's an anti-tank mine sitting in the center of each of these circles of white rocks. And what it was, was Marines kept driving through this farmer's yard. That was just the most direct route for him through the desert. And he was like, look, I got these anti-tank mines and I'm putting them out here. I'm going to circle them with white rocks so you see them. <laughs> but just understand, I don't want you to drive through my yard. And I remember my platoon started saying like, well, you know, hell surf. He was wa- driving through my yard in Baldwin County, Alabama. I'd put out landmines if I had them too. <laughs> um, and that that's like, again, a big wake up that this is where you are now, man. Right. Um, and so we got back to the base and one of my buddies was there and he was heading home. It was the most messed up thing. I drove him down to put him on a helicopter and fly home. And uh, as he was running on the helicopter, he, he's like motioned to me over. He's like, you know, waves at me. And I lean in close cause we're under the rotor blades. And he goes, when you get smoked, you want us to name a barracks or a chow hall after you? <laughs> and then he laughed and got on the helicopter. And, uh, you know, it was, it was funny. Also not
0: funny at the time. Right. Uh,
1: but that was, you know, that was my first combat. deployment. we spent seven months once we actually got up on plane, uh, kicking doors and throwing flashbangs and yanking guys out of their beds. Uh, honestly, for no real good reason, as far as I can tell. I call it my ISIS recruiting tour
0: right
1: uh, 10 years later those kids that we snatched their dads were back shooting at us
0: right so did you choose a a uh a uh a, a dfac or a a barracks to uh to be named after?
1: <laughs> i wanted a barracks all you right thank me every time
0: every time they go to bed <laughs> yeah yeah well so, I, I like
1: food so It probably should have picked a dfac <laughs> Right.
0: um yeah so it's super interesting to hear uh like the the, I, I guess I didn't really know that there was like a, a reserve uh, recon like element that, that's out there. Oh, yeah.
1: There's there's battalion recon and force recon. Um, and I, I, I'd be lying if I said I was 100 percent current on the structure. But there is a, a recon battalion uh, that works for the doctrinally works for a Marine division. Uh, and they're headquartered in San Antonio, Texas. Okay. Um, and they have companies in, I know in Albuquerque, Atlanta, uh, somewhere, maybe up in like Montana or somewhere, I think in Billings, they, they used to have one to be like Chicago. They got one in Chicago. Okay. I don't know where all they are. And, and then there was a force recon, two different force recon companies. And they were split between Reno and Hawaii. Then they moved Reno to Alameda, California. I don't think Hawaii exists anymore. I think everything's in Alameda uh, and then the Force Recon Company in Mobile, which nice. is all been there.
0: And so you, you were like uh, in Mobile, you're just down the street from uh, one of our uh, – Yeah, it was like teams. BCO
1: of, you know, whatever battalion of 19th group.
0: Yeah, right. So we have ACO uh, in, in the Washington National Guard. We have ACO of the 19th group. So.
1: Okay. Yeah, great guys. I, and I've got good friends here in North Carolina who are SF Guard guys. Um, here and in Massachusetts, oh,
0: that's pretty cool, so what was your first like legit like uh like firefight like?
1: um I will say studying uh y- you know and, and I also say like I guess it depends on how you define legit and firefight mm-hmm. oh, um,
0: yeah,
1: go. I've always been a student of warfare, and I'd read about ten million I was there books, which <laughs> right. actually is incredibly useful uh if you're a guy or gal who's engaged at the tactical level. Yeah, read Clausewitz, you know, and read high-level stuff. Learn about big blue arrows, but also learn, like, don't use the same trail pa- twice. Right. And learn how to sweep your back trail and, you know, understand what it means when things suddenly go silent. And we were driving into this town to do another raid, uh, and the town's called Ubaidi. And if you look at it on the map, it sits in an oxbow of mm-hmm. a river, um of the Euphrates, and it was an industrial town. It was kind of interesting place. I mean, there was a lot of interesting stuff there, especially for a guy, you know, I lived in Australia for six months in college. I deployed to Japan for six months and like visited Mexico. I think that's about it. Um, And now I'm, I'm in Iraq and it, you know, there's evidence of, of stuff from Eastern East Germany. There's evidence of stuff from, you know, just all these different Soviet bloc influence that, To me was in movies and books, right? You know, and I was like, wow, this is, this is real. Um, so the, the city was an industrial like communist laid out city. Um, they come in and, and it was centered around a plant, a cement plant, and all the workers from the cement plant and all the workers from the phosphate plant lived in these row after row after row of identical, uh, apartments. Right. By the end of the deployment, I could look at overhead imagery of an apartment and be like, okay, that's where the entryway is. There'll be a little room to the left when we come in. And, you know, I mean, it's new every floor plan because I've done it so many times. Right. Um, and so we rolled into Ubedee for another raid one night and, and it had been dry hole after dry hole after dry hole. Um, and there were always cops at the southwestern entrance to the town. There was only three ways into the town. So eventually they're going to get you. You're right. Um, and I would shake it up. Like I would drive all kind of crazy routes to try and deny them the ability to either booby trap me, mine me or ambush me. Right. Um, And so we came in. There were always a police checkpoint at that corner. And we rolled in. I was the lead vehicle. And I'll use this as a, a moment for your leaders out there. Um, I had a really high, I had the best armored Humvee. And my team leaders came to me like, hey, sir, you got to take that truck. Um And I was like, I can't. I can't ethically take that truck. I can't be the guy who's sitting inside the, the most armor. Right. And they're like, Hey, sir, uh, you're already always in the lead vehicle. Um, and we like you and we don't want to train another officer. <laughs> so if you could not be get killed, that would be cool. Um, you know, and you're already kind of the the best chances of hitting the IED or whatever. Uh, so yeah, we want you to take that truck. Right. Okay. Roger. I, and they gave me license to do it. Right. And I, I still carry guilt about it, but they gave me the license to do it. And it, it meant a lot. Like to me that And you're a chaps. So I'm going to bring it up. Like that's love, man. Like there's so much love that is important to a combat unit. I think it's even more true in the reserves and guard when you have trained with the same people for decades sometimes. And when you know, you know, this guy's your platoon Sergeant here, but he's actually an executive at the bank. (laughs) Right. You know, and you just have this. You have to figure out how that relationship works, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah, um, I, uh, I I was driving in that that lead truck, and there were no cops at that corner, and I just got on the radio and I was like, "Hey, fellas, get ready to get hit." And it was kind of like in the time it took me to say that, it lit off, and they 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 started it with two RPGs, and they didn't hit the vehicle they were aiming at. It went right across the hood and behind um and so the, there were these explosions to our left side now they ambushed us from our right exploded on the left because they missed our trucks thankfully um we had practiced reaction to contact on ieds so many times because that was the major threat
0: right um
1: that i thought we you know it was ieds um and but i also know that ieds are typically going to be covered by fire if your enemy is squared away so the value of training the value of muscle memory the value of immediate action drills was i was on the radio i was like ieds punch it um we punched the first vehicle through the kill zone i was probably out of the kill zone by the time they kicked off with the machine guns um and you know back then we didn't have the i talked about the up armored truck we only had two of them and we it took five trucks to move the platoon so and one of the trucks was open like sort of like a pickup truck. It was an open back Humvee is what it was. Right. And we had bolted uh sheet steel on either side of the, the bench seats, like you have in the back of a Hummer. Yep. Yep. The guys could kind of squat down behind the bench steel, but it's wide open to the air above. Right. Um, and the, I always put my assaulters in that truck because they could all fit in one and they about turned that truck over because everybody moved over to the side of that truck so they could shoot back. <laughs> You know, it, you know. God bless Marines because they're yeah, like, oh, right. somebody's shooting at us from the right. Everybody, get on the right side of the vehicle so you can get some. <laughs> um, and uh, and we managed to get out of the kill zone. And I I would be lying to you and anybody listening if I was like, oh yeah, and I was totally cool and I was totally calm and I knew exactly what to do. Um, we we got the the platoon out. Um, we harbored. We did exact all the IE drills we had planned a million times. It was all muscle memory. So almost without thinking about it, we punch to the northwest corner of the town. We move out into the desert. We establish a 360 facing outboard with the vehicles, you know, ready for follow-on attack. None of which was going to come, right? We're, we're, we're fighting four dudes with machine guns and RPGs, not the, the 12th Riled Army. Right. Um, and they know better than to to come after 25 Marines who are carrying 50 cals and March 19s. Right. Um, but I was, a, I was pretty hyped up. That was the first time I ever been shot at. Yeah. And I couldn't make, I had satellite comms, it wouldn't work. Uh, my VHF comms wouldn't reach higher. So I, I had a sat phone and I ca- I got on a sat phone and I called the, the ops, the company ops chief um, it was a guy named Jeff Wilson. And Jeff is still at MARSOC telling people what to do today as a civilian. Um, and he's like the absolute epitome of the crusty Marine master gunnery sergeant. I love him to death, you know, mm. I, I, and I've told him this a million times. Um, and I got, I, I was kind of like, we got shot at, take a fire. <laughs> you know, he's kind of talking a little excited. And, uh, and, and I was also like,
0: send me the QRF. I'm going to kill everybody. <laughs>
1: kill anybody to kill buddy. So just settle down. Um, <laughs> and, and, I, and master guns, Wilson just comes back over the satellite phone. My call sign was dagger. And he's like, hey, Dagger, that's all good. Uh, what I need to know is, are you going to execute the raid or not? Are you just coming home or, or what? <laughs> like, this guy just punked me out. He just straight up punked me out. I'm getting shot at and punked out at the same time. Right. And he, uh, you know, that was the best thing anybody could have done for me right then. Because uh, one, he settled me down. Two, he he grabbed me by the neck as a Marine. It was like, hey, Marine are you going to do what Marines do? Are you going to sit in this 360 and hyperventilate about the fact that, you know, a few guys squirted a few rounds at you. Um, And I was like, Oh, we're executing. (laughs) Right. You know, you know, and it it was just like a guy looking at me across the bar, like you want to (laughs) go.
0: right? Um, You know? (laughs) And
1: and so we went and executed the raid and uh, hit the target. We're supposed to hit. There was nothing on there. There was no, nothing of real value. But the Marines went through all the, the 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 drills, and then we went back and we did all the things. We recovered. We did AARs. We did everything. And later, I had some. Uh, I had a team's worth of Marines who had done the invasion of Iraq, and and one of them who is a very very good friend of mine to this day, really one of my best friends, and gone from one of my sergeants in a reserve platoon to he's an active duty lieutenant colonel today. Um, he came to me. He's like, "Hey, check it out, sir. Great call." Like we could have just gone home, like they they beat us, but you made us go execute right on. And uh, you know, I, I'm a guy who increasingly over the 27 years of officership got real comfortable telling people what to do and real comfortable with making decisions and living with the consequences, which is the officer's role. Yeah. Um. But I have always appreciated very, very much the validation of enlisted folk that I admire. And so, and he, he, he was one and now he's an officer, I admire. Um, but that meant something. And I had a staff sergeant that night who was one of my drivers. Um, he was a cop in civilian life. He'd done the OIF one invasion and and seen a fair bit of, of combat there. And, and same deal. We were driving home from the raids like, Hey, sir, good job tonight. Um, you know, and, and you know, they were looking at their officer to see how's this guy going to respond the first time it really goes down. Yeah. I and mean, deservedly so. Like that that's a, a question everybody who's led should be asking of their leader. How is this person going to perform when it matters? Um and, and apparently I passed their test. Uh so we were good. And that that was the first time. Nobody got hurt the first time, but you know, and and you know, I would have preferred to have been doing the ambushing, not being ambushed. Right. But, uh but that's not how it works. It's not typically how it works. Well
0: that's super cool. Uh, um, that you bring up the, the, the affirming an officer's actions from an enlisted standpoint, because I'll say this, like, even as a chaplain, like, having uh, enlisted guys that I respect come to me and say, like, hey, that was a good move, or hey, like, thanks for this, or whatever else, like, it does mean, mean a lot, and especially in an environment where it's, it's more fashionable to be like this, like, dirtbag LT, or this dude doesn't know anything, or whatever else, it, it's really uh, super awesome to hear, like, kind of encouraging things coming from guys that you know, like, kind of like have it, you know, have it together. Uh, so it's interesting that that you bring that up. So,
1: well, I think that's the difference between pros, and I, and I will say this: like, I've I've had people ask me before, what's the difference between the reserves and the active forces? Um, because obviously, I've I've served in both um, pretty extensively. Um, the difference is most of your reservists or your guards folk. Um, they, their their technical and tactical competence may not be the equivalent of their active duty peers. In some cases it's actually superior, yeah. um, but, but it, you know, generally it's, it's, it's not even expected that you're going to be on par technically and tactically. The difference is a lot of your reserve and guard component are real life grownups
0: mm-hmm.
1: who are doing this because they want to um, or because their, their mom or dad did, or because, you know, especially in the guard, it, it supports the social order of the community. Um, which is incredibly valuable
0: yeah
1: um you want a good network it's the guard yeah. Um, you know or, or the reserve i mean I, I had times when you know one of my reserve marines would get in trouble in the 28 days in between drill periods and the arresting officer might give me a call because he's also a staff sergeant during the drill period he's like hey sir i got corporal so-and-so <laughs> you want me to do here and i'm like is he behaving with you or is he being an idiot you know can you cut him loose? Is that, is that a thing? Right. Uh, you know, and, and and so there, there's just a different structure, and I I had to learn that um, early on. I I was working construction because I got, I'd left active duty and I was working for seven dollars and fifty cents an hour, <laughs> banging nails in northeast Georgia on the during the rest of the month, Ooh. and I was kind of commiserating with one of my team leaders, a recon team leader, saying like hey, man, I don't know. I got to figure something out, like $249 a week take home is not quite getting it.
0: Right. Um,
1: and he he was the director of Parks and Rec for Daphne Alabama. He was like, really? you want a job? You know, he's like, I'll work for you two days a month. You work for me 28 days a month. It'll work out. We're grown ups. Right. And I considered it.
0: Right.
1: You know, because, and that's the, and, and to me, I think there's actually some real magic uh, with that in the garden reserve because I'm still very close to a number of my staff NCOs and NCOs from my reserve time. They were, they were well represented at my retirement from active service. Um, And it was deeply, deeply meaningful. Um, And some of my closest friends in the world are are from that time.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So you said um, you Told me before we got going that like uh you like to speak a lot to the um the the sieve mill divide and they said that the guard really kind of plays plays a role in that like you uh, speak to to that like what what do you have to yeah I, absolutely
1: um so yeah I, I I part of the way I ended up being a writer uh, for a living is I mean I was just writing anyway mm-hmm. uh, but I had an essay published in the New York Times which is one of two essays that a woman who happens to be married to my agent. Uh, spotted, and she's a lovely lady, and uh, she kind of nudged her husband in the guts. It's like, you need to chase this guy down and put him to work. Um, and so one of them was about my experiences in Iraq, you know, the deployment the we've been talking about, and kind of trying to translate that experience to the civilian population. You know, and at that point, we'd been doing this for like 15 years. We had a 20-year war, and not many people cared. Yeah. Um, and very few people were impacted um and and probably the other piece the the piece that drove me to write that New York Times essay um was the first thing I ever wrote that got any traction, and it was about Memorial Day, and all it is is a list of dead people I know, and you ought to know them too, right know? It's not look at me i'm I'm so sad. it's look at these amazing Americans um who are now no longer with us. Most Americans don't have someone to reference as a touch point um on Memorial Day. And I was like I don't want to castigate anyone for eating hot dogs and hanging out at the lake on Memorial Day mm-hmm. at all cuz I'm going to be out on my boat. Um I just want you to have a name to think about today. And you you deserve to as an American citizen. And more and, and more accurately sometimes I say part of my role as a writer now is to grab Americans by the ears and force them to look at a war they ignored for 20 years. Right. Um so uh, that's part of the civ mill divide. I think a nation that doesn't know its military is really dangerous. I think a, na- a, a military that doesn't know its nation is really dangerous. And we are increasingly outsourcing uh, the defense of the nation to a very specific sector of the population.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. You know, whereas with the quote greatest generation, mm-hmm. everybody served. And, and I don't know that I'm ready to call for a, a national service requirement. Um. And at one time in my life, I was adamantly against it.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But I do think the closest thing we've got to an answer is the guard. Um, Just the idea of serving something, whether it's your community, your state, uh, you know, or your nation when federalized, the idea that there may be a day when you're going to get up and do something that requires you to give more than you get, uh, I think is a fundamental aspect of being a citizen in this country. And I think there is a I mean honestly i I don't know if it's a preponderance, but there is a substantial portion of the citizenry that has forgotten that there are concomitant responsibilities that come with every right, yeah, and it is it is lazy citizenship
0: <laughs> yeah that that's uh definitely a a thing that us as a nation, we need to, to, to look at, especially you started looking at like historically, like one of the things that kind of like led to the fall of uh, the Roman Empire was the fact that they were outsourcing their, their military. And they get to the point where they're like, oh, we just can't pay for them anymore. And they're like, well, you know what? We're going to come and take it from you. And not saying that the DOD would ever like turn on America, but like it's still like that, that speaks to that divide that, that you're kind of getting after and then how dangerous it can be if we don't like get ahead of it. And you know the guard is a really good way to to do that, and you're more likely, much more likely, to actually serve your state um, on an actual active mission than uh, than you are on a, a federal mission, or at least a combat federal mission. Um, I mean, like just our state alone, we've done uh, riots, uh, immunization sites, food bank stuff, mudslides, floods, you you name it. Um, and so uh, it's a great way to actually kind of get after uh, that that means of uh, of service, like you're saying.
1: Well, and I think that's a really, as I say, the citizen-soldier ideal, you know, is that community service. Standing ready to support the entire nation if need be, but, you know, doing especially emergency response, like Mm -hmm. that's noble. It is noble and honorable. It may not be cool. It may be really unpleasant standing knee-deep in water filling sandbags to try and keep that water back. Um, But talk about making an impact on people's lives. You know, and I'm sitting here in the Southeast watching the West Coast either alternatively collapse into the ocean or burn. Uh, Plenty of opportunities out there to serve your community. Um, And I think it's a really, really, really cool thing. Yeah. Um, And and I also think, you know, as far as the guard goes, and I I may be betraying an, an old understanding of the split. But as I understand it, all the combat capability resides in the guard.
0: Yes. Yeah, the, the reserves is all uh like kind of admin. It's like like you remember uh, the uh, in the army now. Pauly Shore was a water boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah he was a reservist, and, so, and that was actually accurate. You know, uh, all of uh like all of the uh the combat capability in the reserve, the, the army's reserve components all in the guard.
1: Yeah, in the late nineties, when I started in the reserves mm-hmm. at a force company, the folks that left were either leaving for federal law enforcement. Typically, you know, they were still young guys looking for the juice. Yeah, right. Um, so they were leaving for federal law enforcement, uh, which now, as a lawyer, I realize was a, a fool's errand, um, <laughs> and, or or they wanted to go to like uh, the guard uh, PJ units, right? Special tactics air, air Force units, right? was like all the coolest training in the world, and maybe you're going to rescue somebody off a glacier in Alaska.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's
1: more than pretty cool. That's a yeah. super cool. Like that's a cool way uh, to spend your life. Saving yeah. other human beings, um, you don't ever have to wonder was this worthwhile.
0: Did Did you happen to see um, where there was a guardsman who is like caught talking to people at like two a.m. Uh, in Ukraine about how to uh, work a javelin missile launcher? No. Okay, so this is actually a pretty cool story, and it happened in the, so. Um, last year or so, was it 2020, 2021, uh we had uh, the 81st Brigade headquarters, so uh so our brigade was deployed to Ukraine. Uh, and then the the rest of the brigade had basically augmented uh a uh, enhanced forward presence uh you know unit up in, in uh in Poland. Well anyways uh-huh. The brigade mission was was to basically do kind of like an NTC rotation, uh, or to train the trainers for like the Ukraine's version of of, uh, of a CTC rotation. And so, uh, anyways, they built all these relationships with these guys that were training people how to use the javelins. Well, they redeployed, came back home, Russia invades Ukraine. And one of the, uh, the I believe it's a search of first class, gets a call at like this bizarre hour from this weird number. And he answers the phone. And it's like it's like a guy from Ukraine. He's like, hey, you know, is this, you know, search first class, whoever, um, I, I cannot remember his name top uh off my head but anyways he says like hey like um you taught the class on the javelin and he was like yes and he, and he goes hey um like we're having this problem like how do i fix it and he was like okay like you this is what you do so he's like okay and he they end up using a remember right it's a motorcycle battery to power the clue for the javelin I did see that yeah and he's like he's like hang on one second here's the javelin go off he goes thanks we just killed a russian tank call you back with any other issues and so you know, you would never see that on active duty. You, you no. see it in the guard, you know.
1: Yeah, there there would be you know potentially some dramas uh, if you saw that on active duty. So <laughs> yeah, it's pretty.
0: You know, I, I think
1: well. I I just think the guard is great. Um, my my uncle Ernie was the governor of Georgia, and he was the adjutant general. You know, before mm-hmm. that, um, I I think the guard has. Tremendous capability, but really for me, the Marine Corps says our major mission is to take them, uh, make a Marine, have them for four years, and return them to America better than we found them. Right. Um, you know, it's just more focused on citizenship and understanding service, et cetera.
0: Right.
1: Uh, because most Marines don't stay more than four years. I mean, we have, we have massive turnover uh, relative to other services, and I think the Guard makes better citizens.
0: Yeah. I can totally see that. I mean, just like you're, you're more engaged for a longer period of time. Uh, you know, like typically, I mean, like your your initial guard contract six years, like just everybody. So, like by, by the time you, you're in for six years, like the the network and the relationships that that you have, it becomes very difficult to leave. Now, we still have people that leave. But a lot of times it's because they're they're forced with a um, a choice between their military service and like a civilian career that's like kind of like a, has a high op tempo. It's typically kind of the thing that happens. But from the majority of people, especially if they're in a in a job where they can stay, they stay. And, and so because of that, like you end up having this like very, like it's like a, a second family to me. Uh, it's like all the people uh, that I serve with. And I, and I even I commute to drill now. I, like I serve in the Washington Guard and I live in Texas. And so, uh, you know, but like, uh, you know, with technology, the way it is, it's not it's like I'm not really not in Texas at all. I'm being very much close to them.
1: I don't I was thinking you don't have a Washington state accent.
0: Oh, no, no, no. no! I, I was born in South Arkansas. It's funny. You said uh, lower Alabama. Do y'all call it like L.A.? Like I'm going well, to L.A.? Yeah. yeah, yeah we say the same thing. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, so but um, we're getting short on time and I don't want to miss this part. But like uh, so you helped out with the uh, the evac from uh, Kabul um mm-hmm. Can you like what was I, I i know a lot about you but i don't know a, a lot about that so this is kind of new ground for me so can you tell me like what was that like for you
1: um yeah absolutely i retired uh june 30th of 2021 and six days later i loaded my daughter up in an rv uh and we drove around america with the notion of visiting as much american public land as possible national parks national oh. forests whatever right um and my wife met us up in montana and rode home the rest of the way with us. We drove 12,000 miles exactly from my door back to my door. Wow. Um, it was awesome. So, so, you know, it was kind of like washing the military out of my system, and, but but embracing America. And I'm a civilian now. Let me see this country. Yeah, right. Um, And it, it really was great. So I got home on August 5th, I think, um, or maybe August 10th, whatever day it was. And then I got a message from a marine reservist in Texas actually who had who's an Afghan um and he was a interpreter in Afghanistan with marines and Army sF guys uh, for seven years got wounded pretty badly eventually was able to immigrate to America become an American citizen join a marine reserve
0: that's pretty wild um,
1: yeah great guy um and he reached out to me because we'd talked a few times before and said hey sir my my parents are in Kabul uh, my dad's a, a colonel my brother's an interpreter, both in the special mission wing, which was the special ops aviation for the afghan army mm-hmm. and uh and then my little brother and mom are with them, and they're gonna get killed like there's I'm gonna lose my family
0: yeah
1: what can you help and i I kinda at the time of my mind I was like look man I, I know you're a lance corporal and I'm a lieutenant colonel, and you think that means something, but I'm a middle manager.
0: Yeah, right.
1: (laughs) Um, But it does mean something when a Lance Corporal asked the Lieutenant Colonel to help save his family. Right. There was no option to say no, so I was like, look, man, I'll see what I can do. And I was laying in my bed when this little instant message came in, you know, and I rolled over to my wife. I was like, I have no idea what's going to happen here and what I'm going to be able to do, but uh, I think the next day I saw that the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit was headed to Kabul to, to hit the airport and do what they could do to kind of organized the the evac and I knew the commanding officer of the, the Mew. Um, and I knew a couple of, of his folks pretty well. Uh, so I just started shooting texts, instant message, whatever. Like, I don't know what you can do. I don't know what you're rolling into, but know that there is a Marines family in Kabul and they need to come out.
0: Right.
1: Um, and you know, it was like, Hey, yeah, we'll, we'll do what we can. Um, we'll see what, what kind of craziness we have. And, uh, and then they had a whole lot of craziness. And then on the night of August 18th, I think it was we got the family out. And I was in a buddy's cabin in Western Carolina, in the middle of the outer bands of a hurricane. (laughs) I mean, and there were houses sliding off mountains into the Tuckasee River. I was supposed to be fly fishing out there. The, the The rivers were completely mudded out. You know, there was no fly fishing to be had. There's dead bodies floating down the river. It was like the apocalypse all at once in August of 2021. Right. Um, and I'm my, my buddy's cabin has no cell service under normal circumstances. It only has internet and text communication when the electricity's on. And there was no electricity when I got there. So he and I are sitting on the porch. And about midnight, the lights all came on. And my phone just starts ding, 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 ding. Wow. And it was a message. It was messages from one of my buddy in Kabul at the Mew, uh, not the commander, but another guy saying, hey, man, if you can get your guy here in an hour, uh, I might can get or get his family here in an hour. I might can get him out. Well, that message was an hour and a half old. Yeah. Um, so I immediately i am like, you know, is this still good? Is this still an option? He's like, yeah. So I called this guy in Houston and said, call your family in Kabul right now. Tell them, grab all the cash they got and whatever they can carry and go to the airport right now. Yeah. And then I, I reached out to a guy I'd been following on social media for really seven, for months as he was trying to get his interpreter out. He's a Marine major. Um, And I, I've never spoken to him in my life. I called him on Facebook, instant message phone. Right. Dude, You don't know me, but here's my bona fides and here's who we know in common. Mike can help you. And, and he said, actually, I, I think I got this one under control. Um, that was his third effort to try and get his guy out. And that turned into the book that I, I, I authored with them. Um, but anyway, we got that family out and I, I woke up, you know, I really didn't sleep the rest of the night. It was about two o'clock in the morning when they, you know, I finally got the they in message from my, my guy in Houston. Um And he sent me a picture then of his family on an air on a c one thirty or a c five or seventeen or what whatever bird it was flying him to cutter um and I was just like emotionally wrung out and honestly it was it was like a combat mission, Yeah, oh, yeah, and really one of the best things I ever did in the marine Corps uh and I had been retired forty five days um okay. and so the next morning I got up, and I drove back from western Carolina to my house. In eastern, I'm way here in Wilmington, like I'm at the far opposite end. It's like El Paso to Houston kind of sitting right. there. <laughs>
0: um,
1: and the whole way back, I'm calling buddies uh from SOCOM and from the Marine Corps and from the agency, all of whom had extensive Afghan experience, saying, What are we gonna do here? Like we know a lot of people.
0: Yeah. And
1: I think I think it was that night we, you know, we had a Zoom call with just four or five of us. And then it was a zoom call with 15 folks. And then it was a zoom call with 40 folks and some active and some current Intel folks. And, you know, there were, yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of stuff going on and there was a lot of, hey do whatever you got to do right now. We'll sort it out later. Right. Then I got linked up with some millennials, uh, courtesy of a, a prior Marine turned journalist, buddy of mine. Um, and, it was kind of funny because, as I said, it was like six or eight of us old guys. I was the I was the most junior guy as a retired Marine lieutenant colonel. Um, in fact, my old CEO from Force Recon was there. Uh, the guy who'd been the senior special ops advisor to the Afghans was there. Uh, a, a pretty senior CIA officer slash Marine reservist was there. Um, and and then my buddy said had published a story in Military Times about this group of millennials who was doing the same thing. And I read the article and I called the guy. I was like, hey, man, hook me up with this guy. So I I called this guy named Joe Sabo out of the blue, young Army cap, prior Army captain, now out, civilian. Um, And I I was kind of calling to kind of muscle up on him and and let him know who I am and, and who my buddies are. And we're here now. We're ready to tell you what to do. Right um and i you know
0: like yeah cia guy and special ops guys blah 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 blah
1: and uh he goes wow that is amazing like i never thought i'd be talking to a guy like you i was like all right what are you guys doing he's like well uh we've got 80 volunteers and we've organized a virtual joint operations center and we're physically moving people to the airport we're organizing me in the serials you know he's got this international logistics effort And it's organized on Slack, which I can barely follow Slack at all. By the end of the conversation, I was like, okay, Joe, here's the deal. You're in charge. And (laughs) we old guys are here to bust down whatever doors you need because we know people because we're old. Um, But you tell us whatever you need, and it's our job to figure out how to get it for you. We're in direct support to you. (laughs) Um, And we spent the, the remainder of, you know, August uh busting down doors for these very very capable internet natives who you know by day they were all a lot of them were prior army that that started it uh but by the end of it i think we had 160 mixed civilians and and soldiers and sailors airmen marines whatever uh working 24 7 they were the 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 millennials the kids as i call them sometimes had which sounds you know diminishes what these very impressive human beings are doing so i shouldn't even say it it never would have happened if it had been left to us old people we we might have gotten two or three folks that we knew out maybe yeah. um uh, they got hundreds of people out and they were like organizing sticks of humans move to the airport now locate here link up with this person they're going to move you in now you people will get on an aircraft here i mean they really made you know order out of chaos And it was amazing. I didn't have the ability to do it. I'm proud to be associated with them. I'm proud that I had the ability to, you know, you know, Joe would call me up and be like, okay, we need your help now. Uh, You know, there was one night he called me, I was in bed and this is more about my failure and their successes and how great young folks are. Um, He's like, we got, we got folks who are trying to get through the gate and the Marine guards won't let them in. And I was like, well, Screw it! Give me their give me the Marine cell number. Yeah. So I dial this sergeant who's at the gate in Kabul. You know, with like that crazy throng you saw in the pictures. Yeah. In right. I was like, hey, hey, Marine, um, look, this is Lieutenant Colonel Parker. I'm retired. You don't have to do anything I say, but let me talk to your company commander. <laughs> and he's like, Yeah, okay, Roger that, sir. Um, and now there's this captain on the phone. I was like, Hey, kid, not kid. Hey, captain. Yeah. This is what I need. And this is the situation and this is what will happen if you don't help me with the situation. And he's like, Roger that, sir. I got it. Um, He gave me a cell number. We got connected on signal. I was like, okay, it's under control. The Marines have it. Situation's well in hand. I went to sleep, which was the first time I slept five hours at a stretch in you know, about two weeks. Yeah. I woke up next morning I had some texts from this cab. I was like, Hey nurse, sir, we need more detail. Uh, he'd sent me some imagery. We We think they're here. Can you vector me in on these people? I woke up. I just start crying because I'm like, I I failed the mission. I didn't stay up. I didn't troop the lines. I didn't make sure that Marines were awake in their fighting holes. I failed. So I immediately text this captain. I was like, I'm so sorry. This is on me, not you. Thank you for trying. And this captain texts back to me and I still get choked up when I talk about it. He texts back, Hey, sir, no worries. We went out and got them. <laughs> um, and so they kind of pushed their way out into that mass and found the people I'd at, that that a random marine called them on the phone in Kabul and said, <laughs> "Would you put your lives at risk for some Afghans you don't know and I don't know and get right. them through the gate because I'm a marine and you're a marine and I'm asking you to do it." And these, you know, 20s and 22 and 25-year-old people got done what I couldn't do. Um and I just I I couldn't be any more impressed with
0: them. That's super Badass story is a great place to end it, but I don't, I don't want to, uh, to glance over, uh, you, just, you co-authored a book on this, this whole thing. Uh, can you tell us about it?
1: Yeah, it's really, it's Tom Schumann and Zainula Zaki's story. And, uh, Zach lives down in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's in Texas. Um, he's an Afghan immigrant, you know, if anybody's looking at pictures, here's the book, I'm holding it up. Um, it's called always faithful, a story of the war in Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul and the unshakable bond between a Marine and an interpreter. Uh they served together with at 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines in Sangin province on a deployment that uh I think they had 25 Marines KIA, I think another 120 traumatic amputees. Um, it was a horrible, horrible time to be in Sangin Province because there's just IEDs everywhere. I think, you know, if you talk to those Marines now, they they're like, Yeah, I just went out on every patrol knowing I was going to come back missing a body part or dead. Um sure. that was the baseline assumption. But they took it to the Taliban and they fought him to a standstill through all of that. Um, and so the book covers combat and saying and it covers uh, Zach's life in Kunar province in the east and then in coming to Helmand and what it was like to be an interpreter for American forces. And then his life thereafter, Tom's life, you know, and then how they came back together as brothers uh, in 2017, seven years later, when Zach was like, I, I got to get out of here. You got to help me. Um, and, and to Tom's great credit, he got it done.
0: That's awesome. So Well, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast and telling us your story. It's, uh, it's a very moving thing. So it'll be a really good addition to our lineup.
1: It's been a cool life. And I would say to your folks listening, you know, you have no idea what opportunities are going to pop 23, 24 year old Lieutenant Parker was sure nothing was ever going to happen in the peace dividend. Uh, was in place and the wall fell and I then spent 20 years at war yeah
0: Uh, absolutely you know
1: you just don't know so you know if you're somebody who wants an adventure or somebody who wants to lead an interesting life I I think the National Guard's a great way to do it
0: all right well appreciate it well Colonel Russell Parker thank you so much for coming on
1: bet thanks for having me
0: This has been the Raven Report Podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. If you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team, go to our Instagram and click the link in the bio. Click the join link and connect with us.